you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. Hi, this is Larry Mantle, host of Air Talk on KPCC. Since the start of the coronavirus pandemic, we've had a daily segment on Air Talk devoted to the latest information about COVID-19. As time's gone on, we've looked at vaccines and how the virus and pandemic have affected the lives of Southern Californians. That includes doctors, nurses, epidemiologists, and other medical professionals fighting the virus on the front lines. In each episode of this podcast, we'll speak with one of our experts on the rotating panel of AirTalk guests who will be sharing their expertise with us daily. You can also listen anytime at las.com kpcc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. We begin with the latest news on COVID-19. Yesterday, Governor Newsom announced the state's plans for the next phase of the coronavirus pandemic with an emphasis on prevention and quick reactions to outbreaks as opposed to mandates, which have been the norm during the course of nearly two years of this pandemic. An interesting factor is this was really billed as a shift to an endemic footing from a pandemic one. And in fact, uh, as you look at publications throughout the country, they're describing California as the first state in the country to move to an endemic approach to COVID-19. But as our health reporter at KPCCNLAist, Jackie Fortier will explain, nowhere is endemic mentioned in this plan from the state. Jackie, it's good to have you with us. What, what happened with this notion of moving to endemic? Hey, Larry, thanks for having me on. Um, well, I think we need to talk about, you know, what endemic actually means. And uh, it, it gets misused a lot, unfortunately. Um, Newsom has referred to it as his endemic plan in previous press conferences, but he didn't use that word once yesterday, and it does not appear at all in the 30-page plan. Endemic refers uh, to a disease that's prevalent in a particular place or region, and from a public health perspective, that makes the disease spread predictable. So, for example, malaria is endemic to tropical regions. It doesn't mean that that the disease is less severe. So the goal of the plan that Newsom released yesterday is really to manage the coronavirus as a permanent aspect of our lives. But we are not in an endemic stage right now. Well, and, and the I guess you call it the colloquial use of endemic is how our medical experts have been dealing with it, not not the idea that it's confined to a given region or that it's less uh, dangerous if you get it, but merely that we move to the point where it, it becomes regularized, that it is an ongoing part of our life just as flu is, as terrible as flu can be with killing tens of thousands of, of Americans each year. Yeah. I mean, the reason why I say we're not in an endemic stage is because, you know, the society continues when, even when we have a, ba- a bad flu year. Yes, it, it the flu unfortunately does kill a lot of people. And that's also mainly because a lot of people don't get flu shots. But um, it's, it's uh, I mean, we've had you know, huge disruptions in our schools and our hospitals and businesses uh, in just the last few weeks. So uh, I, I don't think we're anywhere near uh, being in an endemic stage right now. But, you know, California looking forward is expecting us to have more surges. You know, we heard from Healthy 
and Human Services Dr. Mark Galley, and he predicted that we'd have more surges probably this fall when kids go back to school and then again next December. And like we've seen before, you know, it, it wouldn't be too surprising for that to happen with a with a disease like COVID-19. Dr. Dean Blumberg is a chief of pediatric infectious diseases at UC Davis Children's Hospital and professor of medicine at UC Davis. Dr. Blumberg, so good to have you back with us, along with our reporter Jackie Fortier. And and uh, let's talk about what Jackie just mentioned, uh, Dr. Ghali, saying that we can expect to see surges later this year. Given how many people have had Omicron to this point and the number of people that are vaccinated and boosted, would this be then from a variant that um, eludes the protection provided by vaccines or any sort of um, uh, antibodies generated by the Omicron variant so far? Yeah, that's possible, but it's also possible that even without the development of new variants, that just waning immunity over time could lead to a large enough pool of susceptible people to lead to another surge and increased transmission. So I I think that we can have increased number of cases and and really, again, the main thing is to prevent overwhelming of healthcare systems and hospitals. If we get breakthrough infections that are mild and are outpatient, that's not going to be that disruptive. It's the inpatient, the serious diseases, the deaths. Those are the things that we really need to aim to avoid. So then how does the fact that at least one study that I looked at uh, indicated that the uh, severity of Omicron or or the, the apparent lesser severity of Omicron was perhaps more a function of the fact that you had more vaccinated people or people that had had COVID before, as opposed to Omicron being intrinsically less serious in the symptoms it causes. Does that then argue for the fact that... Um, you might see, even with a surge later this year, diminished symptoms um, compared, say, to Delta. Yeah, I mean, I, I would hope so. I mean, the idea is that once you get people to have at least partial immunity from vaccination um, and or previous infection, that these breakthrough infections will then tend to be mild. I mean, ideally, they'd be Um, isolated to the upper respiratory tract. So they'd be like colds and you might have fever, cough, sore throat for a few days, and then you miss a few days of work or school and you get better. Um, What we don't want is for there to be lower respiratory tract disease, pneumonia, and those are the ones that tend to be more severe, require hospitalization and result in death. So you would hope that that kind of partial immunity that's been acquired, you know, one benefit, you could say, of having the Omicron surge and having more people um, infected could result in that partial immunity. Jackie, uh, please walk us through the the basics that the plan uh, of the plan the governor announced yesterday. Yeah, well, I mean, the plan really uh, emphasizes flexibility. And I think it puts Californians on notice that the state does expect other COVID surges uh, because of an emphasis on monitoring things like wastewater, you know, for evidence of, of more viral load and that another surge could be coming by looking at the data. So the plan uses the acronym SMARTER, which stands for Shots, Masks, Awareness, Readiness, Education, meaning schools, Testing, and RX, meaning treatments. And uh, Secretary of Health of Human Services, Dr. Mark Galley, was really at pains that uh, to, to emphasize that when future surges happen, the state will be ready to respond with a scientific-backed approach. 
Uh, it is a little vague. Dr. Galley said that mitigation strategies like, you know, mask mandates will really depend on how the virus is behaving, whether it's surging and what the collective immunity in the area is. So we didn't get any specific triggers or criteria, for example, when another statewide mask mandate would be put into place, because it's all dependent really on the virus and how the virus is behaving. He said under some circumstances, they would be looking at hospitalizations uh, if it was a variant, for example, that could easily elude um, uh, protections offered by the vaccine, similar to Omicron. Uh, If not, they would be looking at case numbers. So we're not really sure what those triggers would be uh, that would input, you know, something like that. Um, but I think it's, you know, really a step for California to be looking towards the future and, and really just putting everyone on notice that COVID is here to stay. One of the challenges, it seems, Jackie, is is really having that kind of intensive tracking that was described. For example, there's there's really, to my knowledge, nowhere that tracks positive tests and COVID cases for people who don't end up tested in a public health setting or end up presenting at a hospital. So you get, you know, large numbers of people who test positive, maybe asymptomatic or with manageable symptoms of COVID. They're never really in the system, right? So is is there any, is there been any announcement about how to capture that data so that uh, the state can be more nimble in how it responds to a future surge? Yeah, that's why they're looking at wastewater, because it's passive and nobody has to uh, submit test results. Like you're saying, if you do an at-home test, you're right, that doesn't get, um, uh, unless you decide to tell the health department, which you can, um, that doesn't get uh, told to the health authorities. So we're... Public health is starting to look at passive things like wastewater more often. Uh, and what they do is they they test various areas to see um, if the viral load is, is getting higher within the wastewater. The CDC actually launched uh, a nationwide, um, I think there's like 35 participating states. It's not quite across the country yet. Um, but they're trying to look at wastewater, you know, all over the country to figure out where these surges are beginning to happen because it actually shows up there first. Um, before people go and get tested. So, you know, the big question is, what do you do with that information? You know, if you have a week, maybe maybe a week and a half before you know that another surge might be coming, you know, are you able to staff up at hospitals? I mean, how are you able to really coordinate that into a state response? That's what this plan is trying to encapsulate. It's going to be interesting to see it in action, though. Well, and it sounded like, just from what I had read earlier about the wastewater monitoring, that the flows they were monitoring were fairly limited and didn't give a particularly uh, wide geographic spread. Did they talk at all about expanding that monitoring so that um, many many more of the wastewater flows are, are able to be uh, monitored? No, they did not get into that level of specificity, but I would hazard a guess that they are definitely trying to expand it as much as possible throughout the state. If you have questions about what the governor announced yesterday with California's SMARTER plan, uh, as the acronym uh, stands for um, for the plan that was unveiled, we're at 866-893-KPCC, 866 or you can email us at atcomments at kpcc.org. Please include your location and your, your first name. We appreciate that very much. Uh, did the governor say sort of what the, the end game is or, or anything about how we sort of need to change our thinking about what COVID-19 represents? 
Um, he said that he was hoping that, you know, we could get back to uh, a, a sense of normalcy, <laughs> using that word, you know, with big caveats. Um, but this is how they're going to be monitoring it looking forward and that, you know, their goal is to keep everyone as safe and healthy in the state of California as possible. Um, I, I do want to point out one other thing that the plan does. You know, up until now, we've gotten a lot of jargon out of the public uh, health department. Um, and Dr. Galley said they'd really be making an effort and putting out a one to two page document in quote plain English in order to stay so that people can stay up to date on the latest testing, tracking, quarantine and isolation rules. So uh, they're finally acknowledging how difficult I think it's really been for a lot of people, myself included, and I do this for a living, to keep on top of what the rules are and why. So they're going to start putting out these ABCs of the smarter plan. Um, it said, you know, every couple of weeks so that people can understand what the rules are statewide. Now, this all comes with the caveat that local health departments can put in their own restrictions, similar to what L.A. County is doing right now with the indoor mask mandate. So we're still going to see this patchwork approach, you know, depending on if there's more cases in L.A. County and, and how, you know, our health department decides to respond. They can be stricter than the state. Uh, let's uh, talk, particularly since we have Dr. Blumberg here with us, who's a pediatric infectious disease specialist, about where we stand with schools um, in L.A. County. Um, earlier this week, I think it was Tuesday, uh, school districts were allowed to decide if they uh, would let kids be outside without masks on. So you have a district um, like Glendale that uh, did go to that uh, effective Wednesday, I believe it was, that students could be outside unmasked. LA Unified has still not done that. Students must be masked throughout the school day unless they're they're drinking or eating. Um, and, and so what would, what would change that, Jackie? Do we know what the future is going to hold for school mask policies? Well, Throughout the state, there is an indoor school uh, mask mandate uh, for staff and parents, or I'm sorry, anyone who's going into the school, uh, including students. So you're right, all the kids have to wear masks uh, while they're in school. And part of the reason for that is because we have very low vaccination rates, even of children who are you know eligible to be vaccinated. I'm not talking about the really young kids where the, the vaccine hasn't been approved for them yet. So uh, I know part of the, the logic behind keeping this in place is to um, hopefully more kids get vaccinated. They just don't feel comfortable yet when so few of them are having them take their masks off. Um, we will learn uh, what happens to the indoor school mask mandate on February 28th. That's when we'll have another press conference uh, with Health and Human Services Secretary Dr. Mark Galley. At that point, he will announce um, it could be a timeline or a specific date for lifting that mandate. All right. And and um, had you heard anything? I know Kyle Stokes is, is closely covering this for us, uh, education. Anything about when L.A. Unified might allow kids to be unmasked outdoors? Uh, I believe that it is uh, a discussion that's going on with the teachers unions because that's part of their uh, agreement with the unions. Okay. So I think it would have to they'd have to come to an agreement on that. I don't know. All right. Uh, Dr. Blumberg, I'm interested in your thoughts on on this. And what do you think the criteria should be for allowing students to be unmasked outdoors and indoors? It's very difficult to say. It certainly is not case rates because the case rates, the daily infections, you know, the, again, the outpatient infections, if they're relatively mild, aren't as much of a concern as the more severe disease. 
So I think it depends on the level of the transmission throughout the community. And then as Jackie said, the level of immunity vaccination among students and staff. And then the third thing is the local risk tolerance. So different communities are gonna have different risk tolerance. And so I think we will see um, a patchwork of, of different rules and requirements once the state lifts um, a, a school mask mandate that some school districts will opt to continue masking and others will, will opt to, to have masking be optional. And will that provide a, a case study then of in-school transmission where you can actually look at the efficacy of, of masking versus the risk of un, unmasking of students? Certainly, and we already have that data from other states because the CDC has looked at the school outbreaks and rates that, of infection that occur in schools and the masking is, is very effective. We found that in fact, schools are actually safer places than other places in the community because of the mask mandates. The, the, the transmission that the students who do get infected, they get infected from community transmission, not from schools. Um, so we know that the masks work. The question is, do we need to have a mandate anymore or are, have, has this evolved with enough immunity within our communities um, to be an individual decisions for parents and students to make? All right, Jackie, thank you so much for talking with us about uh, the governor's plan. Any uh, important points that I, I didn't ask you about that you want to make sure to, to uh, alert our listeners to? Well, I, I would like to remind everybody that California uh, really has a fantastic, you know, testing program going on in schools. And we're really unique in the country to have that, uh, you know, testing program and this really layered approach. Most of the kids in the country are going to school, you know, without masks and without any testing. So we do have, you know, uh, layers in place. Um, I really think that this is an interesting plan that looks forward. And I hope we get a little bit more detail. Uh, and when we do, I will be happy to explain it to you. Uh, we continue with Dr. Dean Blumberg, UC Davis Children's Hospital, where he's chief of pediatric infectious diseases and professor of medicine. He was kind to join us as we talked about California's smarter plan, as the State Department of Public Health has dubbed it. Uh, Dr. Blumberg, what, as you look at this plan, do, do you think that it is substantive? You know, actually, I think one of the things that Jackie said was really appropriate about this plan. She said that a lot of the details were vague. And, you know, vague is good, in my opinion, in, in this sense, in that you don't want to pin yourself down to, to something like specific case rates or other issues. That, that can paint yourself into a corner. I think being vague um, results in being more nimble. You can um, then react depending um, as the circumstances warrant. So I, I think that not having specific details can be appropriate in this instance because, you know, things change all the time with um, with 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 COVID. Um, you know, Omicron. Who knew that it would be so relatively mild? We saw so many cases um, and and less admissions than we saw during the Delta um, period. And and so if we just went on the on the basis of case rates during that time, it would not have been appropriate. Uh, Los Angeles Times reporting that L.A. County's indoor mask mandate will likely be lifted by the end of next month. So that's still considerably longer than we're seeing in many other parts of the country. Um, your thoughts, uh, Dr. Blumberg, about whether we're going to be able to sustain that for several more weeks? 
you know, we'll see, you know, the case rates in LA County have dropped way down. So they've um, um, dropped from almost 60,000 a day to about 2000 a day from the peak of the, um, of the Omicron surge. So they're, they're way down. And, and I think that, you know, the, the question is, are they going to stay down or are they going to go up again? And when you do remove mask mandates, will you have a, a subsequent surge? And that's something that we just don't know. We're at 866-893-KPECC or email your question for Dr. Blumberg at atcomments at kpecc.org. Please include your first name and your location. It's particularly a great time if you're a parent with questions about your child, about vaccination, about ways of helping to protect your child from COVID-19 or even vulnerable family members. If you've got a kid going out into the world and then, you know, someone at home who's who's potentially um, vulnerable to COVID, this is a great chance for you to ask Dr. Blumberg your questions at 866-893-KPECC. The Wall Street Journal is reporting that the FDA delayed its review on Pfizer's shot for kids under five because it showed considerably lower efficacy against Omicron than against the Delta variant. I don't know if you've had a chance to look at this reporting from the journal. Dr. Blumberg. But but it's interesting. And then the question is, well, what does that mean for, you know, those kids getting vaccinated? Yeah, well, if it does have a lower rate of effectiveness, then what that translates into is that you would end up needing a larger number of children in the study to prove um, beyond a doubt that the vaccine was effective. So that, that, that's how it makes that study more difficult. However, that's not the only thing that researchers look at. They also look at the immunogenicity, the antibody response among those children. And what's been done with other vaccines and other studies um, is when we go down in age with vaccines to determine if they're effective or not, immunobridging studies are done. So looking at the immune response and then comparing that immune response to older groups, older age groups, for example, 16 to 25 year olds, where we know what the antibody response is and we know that the vaccine has been effective. And if we get similar or better antibody responses, then that's enough for the FDA to go on. So they need to look at that data also. Also, I I wonder the fact that it seems like so many fewer kids get sick with COVID-19 than adults do. Does that make particularly for the youngest ones, this kind of testing more difficult? It can be more difficult, but mostly with these um, studies, what they're doing is really extensive case follow-up. So any kid with a sniffle, they'll be making sure to, to test them. So the rate of testing in these studies is higher than, than compared to the general population. So at this point, it appears there's nothing in the foreseeable future about vaccines for under five-year-olds. Is is that right? Well, we do have some um, data that's expected. So for the Pfizer vaccine, um, they do expect to have data presented um, to the FDA sometime in April. And Moderna is doing studies in two to five-year-olds, and though they, they expect data to be available in early March. So I think it's going to be another month or two. And then we'll, we'll start seeing data. And then once they present it to the FDA, probably a month or so later, 
um, we'll, we'll get the CDC guidance. Katie in Redondo Beach says, I'm pregnant. I'm having the baby in about two weeks. Congratulations, Katie. I'm wondering whether my son should stay home from preschool before and uh, um, uh, should stay home from preschool uh, to be safe. Yeah, so preschool, of course, the kids generally aren't wearing masks because they're too, if they're less than two years of age, they're too young. Um, and then children, of course, can have compromised hygiene compared to adults. So it is a risk for transmission of several infections. In terms of COVID, the, most of the COVID introduced into families is from parents to children and not from children to parents or children to other children. Um, and then in addition for newborns, for healthy newborns, COVID generally is not very serious. It's the older children that tend to have more serious consequences with COVID. So, I, I, you know, it depends on your risk tolerance, of course. Um, if you're very risk averse, then keep the other kid home. But on the other hand, it, it can be very difficult in terms of caretaking. And so that can be very, um, it can be a big relief for parents to have their kids in preschool. So I, I personally would feel comfortable with the kid continuing in preschool and bringing the newborn home in that circumstance. All right, Katie. Uh, and Carolyn Whittier emailed us, if COVID is here to stay, does that mean everyone will eventually contract COVID? Not necessarily now, but at some point in the future. Yeah, I think that's a fair assumption. It's contagious enough that everybody's going to get it. And you know the, what I see in the future in terms of COVID is very similar to what we experience with influenza. Once we get enough population immunity um, by vaccination as well as infection, then we should revert into a seasonal pattern of transmission where just like influenza, where you get transmission um, in the winter um, and there's very little transmission during the summer due to the temperature and humidity. Um, and that people generally have mild breakthrough infections. Um, they'll have more mild infections and less infections if they're vaccinated, but even unvaccinated individuals will have previous infection, some partial immunity like they do now with influenza, so that most people won't end up in the hospital or die. Some people will, unfortunately, just like with influenza, we have between two and 50,000 deaths every year in the US. Um, but we, you know, as a society, we accept that number. Um, so we'll, we'll continue to have deaths, we'll continue to have hospitalizations from COVID, but we shouldn't see these big surges unless there's a new variant that nobody's immune to. For example, think about influenza in 2009 with H1N1. Um, in that case, we saw spring and summer transmission of influenza because there was very little immunity to that particular strain. Speaking of variants, we've got the BA2 subvariant of Omicron, which is spreading in some parts of the world. We have some cases here in the U.S. as well. But uh, new laboratory experiments in Japan uh, report that BA2 may uh, be as capable of causing serious illness as older variants of COVID-19, including Delta. And like Omicron, it appears to largely escape uh, much of the immunity created by vaccines. Uh, a booster shot, though, helps restore protection. Y your concerns about BA2, what, what degree of risk do you think it poses based on what we're learning? 
Well, you know, it's it's really an interesting subvariant. Um, I'm not sure if it's going to get its own Greek letter soon because it does appear to be different enough from the original Omicron strain, and it does appear to be about 50% more transmissible versus the original Omicron strain. In terms of severity of disease, um, reports from South Africa suggest that it doesn't cause more severe disease, but this Japanese research, um, which is um, in vitro and animal models, um, does suggest that it might cause more severe disease. So it's really interesting to look at. One of the things we've seen is in um, countries where there have, has been a high rate of this BA2, like Denmark, there's been a, a shift in the hospitalization rate to younger ages. So Denmark, in Denmark now, 93% of the circulating strains, detected strains, are BA2. And what they've seen in Denmark is 10% of the hospitalizations are those zero to two years of age. And the highest rate of hospitalization among every age, any age group, is 12 to 15 years of mm, age. Wow. Yeah, so so I keep looking to see if that happens here. It's not not that much in the U.S. It went from 3.6% of the strains to 3.9% of the strains over the course of the past week. So we'll see if it take hold, takes hold in the U.S. Um, and we'll see if it does result in a shift to younger ages. Jill in Glendale emailed us, I'm an early childhood educator, and we're experiencing more parents angrily fighting masking in our schools. Have there been any studies that prove there are negative effects of mask wearing for young children? My anecdotal experience is not only do the children not mind or even care that they have to wear masks, I've noticed no negative effects. They're just happy to be at school. Well, thank you, Jill, for that observation. That's what, what I've seen also. And thank you for your service to what's a really important field to be in. Um, you know, the, the, the studies have shown that the children do tolerate mask wearing very well. They don't have ill effects. It doesn't result in like lower oxygen or higher carbon dioxide levels. There, there's just no scientific evidence of that. And then the other issue that people have been concerned about is language development as well as children being able to read emotions of adults who are wearing masks on their face. And, and again, as far as I'm aware, there is no evidence that there are negative effects from, from mask wearing. And in addition to that, if you think about mask wearing in the school environment, children are not wearing masks at home. So if there's any negative effects from watching people's lips in terms of language development, that's only a small portion of the day for them. And then they'll be able to pick that up right at home when, when they're able to be looking at their parents and older siblings. So I think, you know, the, a lot of that anger is driven by more political background and, and not by science. Well, I have to say I'm, I'm so impressed with how many of the schools are, are dealing with this. And um, it's just, you know, hearing about the the ways of working around the facial expression issue that you mentioned, because there are some masks that are actually see-through with plastic, that you can see that if, like my wife's a speech pathologist and, and works with the younger kids. Um, and they just, they have to find creative ways to work with the kids. But I have to say my wife observes what Jill does, um, that um, the kids have really done a wonderful job of adapting to this. I think there's a lot to be proud of with, with our kids and seeing how they've 
they've handled this. Susan in Venice says, My husband is 84 and loves saunas and steam rooms, but hasn't gone in them for the past two years. Uh, is it safe for my uh, husband to go back in and, and um, uh, be in a steam room or a sauna? Yeah, I, you know, I haven't worn a mask in a steam room or a sauna, but I can imagine that that probably wouldn't work well because if they get damp, <laughs> yeah, then, then then you won't be able to breathe through them and that would be dangerous. So I don't think you can wear a mask in that environment. Um, it, and the air circulation, obviously, it's a bit closed to keep the steam in. So there's not great ventilation there either. Um, you know, and again, I think that's a risk tolerance issue. If he really enjoys it, you hate to have him missing out on that activity. So I think it, if 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 I were going to go into a steam room, um, I'd want to make sure that there were policies in place um, that made sure that people were being screened for illness, that people weren't there when they were sick. That would be one level. Um, if they required vaccination, um, that would be another level of immunity that might make you feel more comfortable. But, you know, at some point with being fully vaccinated and boosted and decreasing rates of disease, um, you know, people, I, I would encourage people to open up with their activities and, and, and really people have missed out so much be, over the past um, couple of years because of the pandemic. Just final quick question for you. We have so many listeners ask about a fourth shot. They had their booster months ago. They're concerned, particularly our older listeners, that this makes them more vulnerable to COVID-19. Israel went to a fourth shot for its older population. What do you think about uh, particularly older or or uh, listeners with comorbidities getting an additional booster? Right now, the recommendations for the fourth shot are only for people who are moderately or severely immune compromised. And the CDC has some criteria for that. So basically, it's a three-dose primary series for those who are moderately or severely immune compromised with a booster dose at least three months following the third dose. For everybody else, for example, healthy people who are older, um, there's no recommendation yet. And I think we just need to see data. We need to see if that's needed. And that's something that the CDC and others are actively tracking. Dr. Blumberg, it's such a pleasure to have you with us every week. I, I look forward to our conversations. Thanks, you too, Larry. Thanks for listening to this episode of COVID in LA. If you'd like to stay up to date with the latest coronavirus news, you can listen anytime at las.com, at kpcc.org, or subscribe wherever you download podcasts. See you next time and stay safe. I'm Larry Mantle. This program is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, a private corporation funded by the American people.